Section 8, Part 1 of Section 3 of the Introduction of the Commentaries on the Laws of England, Book 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. Commentaries on the Laws of England by William Blexton. Book 1. Introduction, Section 3, Part 1. Section the Third of the Laws of England. The municipal law of England, or the rule of civil conduct prescribed to the inhabitants of this kingdom, may, with sufficient propriety, be divided into two kinds. The lex non scripta, the unwritten, or common law, and the lex scripta, the written, or statute law. The lex non scripta, or unwritten law, includes not only general customs, or the common law properly so called, but also the particular customs of certain parts of the kingdom, and likewise those particular laws that are by custom observed only in certain courts and jurisdictions. When I call these parts of our law legis non scripte, I would not be understood as if all those laws were at present merely oral, or communicated from the former ages to the present solely by word of mouth. It is true, indeed, that in the profound ignorance of letters which formerly overspread the whole Western world, all laws were entirely traditional. For this plain reason, that the nations among which they prevailed had but little idea of writing. Thus, the British, as well as the Gallic Druids, committed all their laws as well as learning to memory. And it is said of the primitive Saxons here, as well as their brethren on the continent, that legis sola memoria eusu retinebant. But, with us at present, the monuments and evidences of our legal customs are contained in the records of the several courts of justice, in books of reports and judicial decisions, and in the treatises of learned sages of the profession, preserved and handed down to us from the times of highest antiquity. However, I therefore style these parts of our law legis non scripte, because their original institution and authority are not set down in writing, as acts of Parliament are, but they receive their binding power and the force of laws by long and immemorial usage, and by their universal reception throughout the kingdom. In like manner, as Aulus Gellius defines the jus non scriptum to be that which is tacito et illiterato ominum consensu emoribu expressum. Our ancient lawyers, and particularly Fortescue, insist with abundance of warmth that these customs are as old as the primitive Britons, and continued down through the several mutations of government and inhabitants to the present time, unchanged and unadulterated. This may be the case as to some, but in general, 
as Mr. Selden in his notes observes, this assertion must be understood with many grains of allowance, and ought only to signify, as the truth seems to be, that there never was any formal exchange of one system of laws for another, though doubtless by the intermixture of adventitious nations, the Romans, the Picts, the Saxons, the Danes, and the Normans, they must have insensibly introduced and incorporated many of their own customs with those that were before established, thereby, in all probability, improving the texture and wisdom of the whole, by the accumulated wisdom of diverse particular countries. Our laws, saith Lord Bacon, are mixed as our language, and as our language is so much the richer, our laws are the more complete. And indeed, our antiquarian and first historians do all positively assure us that our body of laws is of this compounded nature. For they tell us that in the time of Alfred the local customs of the several provinces of the kingdom were grown so various that he found it expedient to compile his dome-book, or liber judicialis, for the general use of the whole kingdom. This book is said to have been extant so late as the reign of King Edward IV, but is now unfortunately lost. It contained, we may probably suppose, the principal maxims of the common law, the penalties for misdemeanors, and the forms of judicial proceedings. Thus much may at least be collected from that injunction to observe it, which we find in the laws of King Edward the Elder, the son of Alfred. Omnibus qui republicae presunt etiam atque etiam mando, ut omnibus aequos se praebant judices, perinde ac in judiciali libro, in parenthesis, saxonise, sombec. Scriptum habetur, nec quicam formident, quinius commune, in parenthesis, saxonise, folkrichte. Audacter libereque dicant. But the interruption and establishment of the Danes in England, which followed soon after, introduced new customs and caused this code of Alfred in many provinces to fall into disuse, or at least to be mixed and debased with other laws of a coarser alloy. So that, about the beginning of the eleventh century, there were three principal systems of laws prevailing in different districts. 1. The Mersenlage, or Mersen laws, which were observed in many of the Midland countries, and those bordering on the Principality of Wales, the retreat of ancient Britons, and therefore very probably intermixed with the British or Dredical customs. 2. The West Saxon Lage, or laws of the West Saxons, which obtained in the countries to the south and west of the island, from Kent to Devonshire. These were probably much the same with the laws of Alfred above mentioned, being the municipal law of the far most considerable part of his dominions, and particularly including Berkshire, the seat of his peculiar residence. 3. The Danelage, or Danish law, the very name of which 
speak its original composition. This was principally maintained in the rest of the Midland countries, and also on the eastern coast, the seat of that piratical people. As for the very northern provinces, they were at that time under a distinct government. Out of these three laws, Roger Hoveden and Ranulphus Sestrensis inform us, King Edward the Confessor extracted one uniform law, or digest of laws, to be observed throughout the whole kingdom, though Hoveden and the author of an old manuscript chronicle assure us likewise that this work was projected and begun by his grandfather King Edgar, and indeed a general digest of the same nature has been constantly found expedient, and therefore put in practice by other great nations, formed from an assemblage of little provinces, governed by peculiar customs. As in Portugal, under King Edward, about the beginning of the fifteenth century, in Spain, under Alonso X, who about the year 1250 executed the plan of his father St. Ferdinand, and collected all the provincial customs into one uniform law, in the celebrated code entitled Las Partidas, and in Sweden, about the same area, a uniform body of common law was compiled out of the particular customs established by the Lachman of every province, and entitled the Lands Lach, being analogous to the common law of England. Both these undertakings, of King Edgar and Edward the Confessor, seem to have been no more than a new edition, or fresh promulgation, of Alfred's Code of Donbuk, with such additions and improvements as the experience of a century and a half had suggested. For Alfred is generally styled, by the same historians, the Legum Anglicanarum Conditor, as Edward the Confessor is the Restitutor. These, however, are the laws which our histories so often mention under the name of the laws of Edward the Confessor, which our ancestors struggled so hardly to maintain under the first princes of the Norman line, and which subsequent princes so frequently promised to keep and to restore, as the most popular act they could do, when pressed by foreign emergencies or domestic discontents. These are the laws that so vigorously withstood the repeated attacks of the civil law, which established in the twelfth century a new Roman empire over most of the states on the continent, states that have lost, and perhaps upon that account, their political liberties, while the free constitution of England, perhaps upon the same account, has been rather improved than debased. These, in short, are the laws which gave rise and original to that collection of maxims and customs, which is now known by the name of the common law, a name either given to it, in contradistinction to other laws, as the statute law, the civil law, the law merchant, and the like, or, more probably, as a law common to all the realm, the jus commune, or Volkrecht, mentioned by King Edward the Elder. 
after the abolition of the several provincial customs and particular laws before mentioned. But though this is the most likely foundation of this collection of maxims and customs, yet the maxims and customs so collected are of higher antiquity than memory or history can reach, nothing being more difficult than to ascertain the precise beginning and first spring of an ancient and long-established custom. Whence it is that in our law the goodness of a custom depends upon its having been used time out of mind, or, in the solemnity of our legal phrase, the time whereof the memory of man runneth nor to the contrary. This it is that gives it its weight and authority, and of this nature are the maxims and customs which compose the common law, or lex non scripta, of this kingdom. This unwritten, or common law, is properly distinguishable into three kinds. One, general customs, which are the universal rule of the whole kingdom, and form the common law, in its stricter and more usual signification. Two, particular customs, which for the most part affect only the inhabitants of particular districts. Three, certain particular laws, which by custom are adopted and used by some particular courts, or pretty general and extensive jurisdiction. 1. As to general customs, or the common law, properly so called. This is that law by which proceedings and determinations in the king's ordinary courts of justice are guided and directed. This, for the most part, settles the course in which lands descend by inheritance, the manner and form of acquiring and transferring property, the solemnities and obligation of contracts, the rules of expounding wills, deeds, and acts of Parliament, the respective remedies of civil injuries, the several species of temporal offences, with the manner and degree of punishment, and an infinite number of minuter particulars, which diffuse themselves as extensively as the original distribution of common justice requires. Thus, for example, that there shall be four superior courts of record, the chancery, the king's bench, the common place, and the exchequer, that the eldest son alone is heir to his ancestor, that property may be acquired and transferred by writing, that a deed is of no validity unless sealed, that wills shall be construed more favorably, and deeds more strictly, that money lent upon bond is recoverable by action of debt, that breaking the public peace is an offense, and punishable by fine and imprisonment. All these are doctrines that are not set down in any written statute or ordinance, but depend merely upon immemorial usage, that is, upon common law for their support. Some have divided the common law into two principal grounds or foundations. One, established customs, such as that where there are three brothers, the eldest brother shall be heir to the second, in exclusion of the youngest, and two, established rules and maxims, as that the king can do no wrong, 
that no man shall be bound to accuse himself, and the like. But I take these to be one and the same thing, for the authority of these maxims rests entirely upon general reception and usage, and the only method of proving that this or that maxim is a rule of the common law is by showing that it hath been always the custom to observe it. But here a very natural and very material question arises. How are these customs or maxims to be known, and by whom is their validity to be determined? The answer is, by the judges, in the several courts of justice. They are the depository of the laws, the living oracles, who must decide in all cases of doubt, and who are bound by an oath to decide according to the law of the land. Their knowledge of that law is derived from experience and study, from the viginti anorum lucubrationis, which Fortescue mentions, and from being long personally accustomed to the judicial decisions of their predecessors. And indeed, these judicial decisions are the principal and most authoritative evidence that can be given of the existence of such a custom as shall form a part of the common law. The judgment itself, and all the proceedings previous thereto, are carefully registered and preserved, under the name of records, in public repositories set apart for that particular purpose, and to them frequent recourse is had, when any critical question arises, in the determination of which former precedent may give light or assistance. And therefore, even so early as the conquest, we find the praeteritorum memoria eventorum, reckoned up as one of the chief qualifications of those who were held to be legibus patriae optimi instituti. For it is an established rule to abide by former precedents, where the same points come again in litigation, as well to keep the scale of justice even and steady, and not liable to waver with every new judge's opinion, as also because the law in that case being solely declared and determined, what before was uncertain, and perhaps indifferent, is now become a permanent rule, which is not in the breast of any subsequent judge to alter or vary from, according to his private sentiments, he being sworn to determine, not according to his own private judgment, but according to the known laws and customs of the land, not delegated to pronounce a new law, but to maintain and expound the old one. Yet this rule admits of exception, where the former determination is most evidently contrary to reason, much more if it be contrary to the divine law. But even in such cases, the subsequent judges do not pretend to make a new law, but to vindicate the old one from misrepresentation. For if it be found that the former decision is manifestly absurd or unjust, it is declared not that such a sentence was a bad law, but it was not law, that is, that it is not the established custom of the realm, as has been erroneously determined. And hence it is that our lawyers are with justice so copious 
in their encomiums on the reason of the common law, that they tell us that the law is the perfection of reason, that it always intends to conform thereto, and that what is not reason is not law. Not that the particular reason of every rule in the law can at this distance of time be always precisely assigned, but it is sufficient that there be nothing in the rule flatly contradictory to reason, and then the law will presume it to be well founded. And it has been an ancient observation in the laws of England that whenever a standing rule of law, of which the reason perhaps could not be remembered or discerned, has been wantonly broke in upon by statutes or new resolutions, the wisdom of the new rule has in the end appeared from the inconveniences that have followed the innovation. The doctrine of the law, then, is this, that precedents and rules must be followed, unless flatly absurd or unjust. For though their reason be not obvious at first view, yet we owe such a deference to former times as not to suppose they acted wholly without consideration. To illustrate this doctrine by examples, it has been determined, time out of mind, that a brother of the half-blood, i.e., where they have only one parent the same, and the other different, shall never succeed as heir to the estate of his half-brother, but it shall rather escheat to the king or other superior lord. Now this is a positive law, fixed and established by custom, which custom is evidenced by judicial decisions, and therefore can never be departed from by any modern judge without a breach of his oath and the law, for herein is nothing repugnant to natural justice. Though the reason of it, drawn from the feudal law, may not be quite obvious to everybody, and therefore, on account of a supposed hardship upon the half-brother, a modern judge might wish it had been otherwise settled. Yet it is not in his power to alter it. But if any court were now to determine that an elder brother of the half-blood might enter upon and seize any lands that were purchased by his younger brother, no subsequent judges would scruple to declare that such prior determination was unjust, was unreasonable, and therefore was not law. So that the law and the opinion of the judge are not always convertible terms, or one and the same thing, since sometimes may happen that the judge may mistake the law. Upon the whole, however, we may take it as a general rule that the decisions of courts of justice are the evidence of what is common law, in the same manner as, in the civil law, what the emperor had once determined was to serve for a guide for the future. The decisions, therefore, of courts are held in the highest regard, and are not only preserved as authentic records in the treasuries of the several courts, but are handed out to public view in the numerous volumes of reports which furnish the lawyer's library. These reports are histories of the several cases, with a short summary of the proceedings, which are preserved at large in the record. Their arguments on both sides, and the reasons the court gave for their judgment, 
taken down in short notes by persons present at the determination. And these serve as indexes to, and also to explain, the records, which always, in matters of consequence and nicety, the judges direct to be searched. The reports are extant in a regular series from the reign of King Edward II inclusive, and from this time to that of Henry VIII were taken by the personataries, or chief scribes, of the court, at the expense of the crown, and published annually, whence they are known under the denomination of the yearbooks. And it is much to be wished that this beneficial custom had, under proper regulations, been continued to this day. For, though King James I, at the instance of Lord Bacon, appointed two reporters with a handsome stipend for this purpose, yet that wise institution was soon neglected, and from the reign of Henry VIII to the present time, this task has been executed by many private and contemporary hands, who sometimes, through haste and inaccuracy, sometimes through mistake and want of skill, have published very crude and imperfect, perhaps contradictory, accounts of one and the same determination. Some of the most valuable of the ancient reports are those published by Lord Chief Justice Cook, a man of infinite learning in his profession, though not a little infected with the pedantry and quaintness of the times he lived in, which appear strongly in all his works. However, his writings are so highly esteemed that they are generally cited without the author's name. Beside these reporters, there are also other authors to whom great veneration and respect is paid by the students of the common law. Such are Glanville and Bracton, Britton and Flitta, Littleton and Fitzherbert, with some others of ancient date, whose treatises are cited as authority, and are evidence that cases have formerly happened in which such and such points were determined, which are now become settled and first principles. One of the last of these methodical writers in point of time, whose works are of any intrinsic authority in the courts of justice, and do not entirely depend on the strength of their quotations from older authors, is the same learned judge we have just mentioned, Sir Edward Cook, who hath written four volumes of institutes, as he is pleased to call them, though they have little of the institutional method to warrant such a title. The first volume is a very extensive comment upon a little excellent treatise of tenures, compiled by Judge Littleton in the reign of Edward IV. This comment is a rich mine of valuable common-law learning, collected and heaped together from the ancient reports and yearbooks, but greatly defective in methods. The second volume is a comment upon many old acts of Parliament, without any systematical order. The third, a more methodical treatise of the pleas of the Crown. And the fourth, an account of the several species of courts. And thus much for the first crown and chief cornerstone of the laws of England, which is generally memorial custom, or common law, from time to time declared 
in the decisions of the courts of justice, which decisions are preserved among our public records, explained in our reports, and digested for general use in the authoritative writing of the venerable sages of the law. End of section 8